HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. This week on Meet and 3, I'm about to go on maternity leave. This is Katie Mosman-Wadler, and before I leave you in the incredibly capable hands of Team HRN, we're rounding out Season 5 with a deep dive into the food rules, weird cravings, and overall hype about eating while pregnant. There are a lot of safe foods to eat, and we shouldn't be sort of assuming that just because something is raw that it's dangerous. I just found myself feeling like there was an alien piloting my body and brain and uh, totally changed the way that I ate. So was it the eggplant? Sure. Why not? I just don't know. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and 3 anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'll be back soon with our newest and tiniest producer in tow. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Alaskan food and culture writer, Julia O'Malley. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Julia about what is Alaskan food culture and how does it help define Alaskan identity? And we'll also hear Julia's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. One thing Julia was eager to teach us was how in touch the French were with how to grow, raise, and catch their food, and how this helped them really stay connected to what they were cooking and eating. Upon her return to a rapidly modernizing America, Julia sensed what so many have come to question now, that by turning everything into simply convenience, a lot was going to be lost, knowledge, pleasure, and critical to human survival, self-reliance. Our guest today, a fellow Julia, Julia O'Malley, knows something about this. We were first introduced to this Julia when the foundation provided a grant to support the Anchorage Museum's recently concluded year-long exhibit, What, Why, How We Eat, a survey of Alaska's food culture. The exhibition aimed to expand understanding of the foodways of the far north and explore the future of food in the Arctic. A third-generation Alaskan, Julia O'Malley is a journalist, teacher, editor, and cook from Anchorage. Her most recent book, The Whale and the Cupcake, Stories of Subsistence, Longing, and Community in Alaska, is a multifaceted exploration of Alaska's foodways. It was created in collaboration with the Anchorage Museum's exhibit and published in December 2019. A James Beard Award-winning writer, Julia has written numerous articles for the New York Times, Washington Post, and Eater, 
among many other notable publications, and has developed recipes for the Anchorage Daily News. She's currently an editor at Alaska's Energy Desk, covering energy and the environment. That's all to say, she's pretty well qualified to tell us about Alaskan life. She joined us today to take us on a virtual journey of cooking and eating in Alaska and expand our horizons about one of America's most mythical places. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk about Alaska because I do find it endlessly fascinating. Um, and so let's start with just how, how you describe when people ask you to write about or talk about wh- what is Alaskan food culture? What foods or dishes really define it? Or do you approach it from a different way of defining it? I think that we here haven't done a lot of articulating. It's not like California or something about sort of what our food culture is, but it's pretty distinct and defined. I think the strongest vector comes from the Alaska Native uh, community, which is uh, really rooted in the practice of subsistence which is sort of living from the land here, but it would be the harvest of animals and plants um, and fish. Uh, and those rituals define Alaska Native life, but also kind of provide a way of uh, transferring values from one generation to another. So that's a really, st- and that's all about food, and that's a really strong piece of our culture that I think fans out into just, if you live here long enough, the wider culture as well. Because everyone here relates to place, I think, in some way through wild food. On the other side of that, though, we're so annexed from, you know, the larger world just because of distance that um, our relationship to kind of store food and packaged food is different than other places. You know, um, there's this strain in our cooking tradition. There is a lot of like funky combinations of like fresh, pure, wild food, and then kind of prepackaged shelf-stable food. There's a lot of, like, fish rolled in crackers. And, um, you know, if you go up, there's a lot of, uh, in the northern part of the state, people eat marine mammal, but often with, like, soy sauce or Lowry seasoning salt or um, something like that. So that's sort of another kind of funky hallmark um, of how we eat here. Um, But I don't know that we're defined so much by dishes, but probably by just the prevalence of wild food, um, particularly protein. I think many, many people here um, participate in the harvest of wild food, and it's in everybody's freezer right now. So, so do you think in some ways it's defined by that contrast of things that are, that are eaten, hunted, or, or sourced really in very traditional ways, much more so than in the lower 48, and then this mixture with these like traditions that I wanted you to talk about, like the 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 um, uh, the cake mixes as part of a cultural tradition that seems like that's endured. It, w- it was originally maybe temporary or because there was no other option, but it, it's become maybe ingrained or how do you describe it? I think that's a great way to put it. I think that, you know, people have habits here. You know, I think about my parents, um, but people have habits here that are just, kind of shaped by it being a place where it's been hard to get things. Um, So my mom has this, she's like one lady now, but she has this pantry that could like, I don't know, feed a couple of like families, like, um, but her, her experience is just that, I mean, she was also shaped. I think both my parents in certain ways were shaped by the 1964 earthquake that really did disrupt uh, the supply chain. Um, But there is this sort of building of pantries and the kind of, and also a fondness for certain packaged foods like canned fruit or fruit cocktail, or I have a friend who she says she still just prefers canned milk, Um, you know, and those are the ways in which, you know, people relying on shelf stable pantry goods as they were growing up has kind of just become enfolded into the culture sort of, even though now we have much more, a much wider availability of food and perishable food, if that makes any sense. I'm also struck by, is it just, like, even if you rent, a, maybe, I don't know how you have room, but does every Alaskan have a, a big freezer? That's pretty common. Um, it's pretty common. 
Uh, and, you know, the freezer isn't just wild food. It's also that kind of food hoardy thing of like, you know, I think <laughs> Costco is like a big thing here. Like it is. And it I think we have one of the highest grossing Costco's. Um, you know what that is? They have that everywhere, yeah. right? Like yeah. a big yeah. bulk yeah. store. Yeah, of course. Um, so um, I'm just like, I wasn't sure if it's like a West Coast thing, but um but no, they uh, have they have them in London. Not a lot, but they exist they, here. No so. way. Um, yeah. So it's like you're going to find in there like tubes of moose meat, a bunch of fish and then like six frozen pizzas and, um, you know, a big, huge thing of frozen berries and 76 Eggo waffles. Like people here just tend to have a lot of food. Um, so the freezer and the act of like filling a freezer and pantry and the sort of um, waxing and waning of that is like, it's just really part of the rhythm of life. Be- summer is so manic and light filled and people are just like out there gathering and participating, you know? And so your freezer gets kind of, you get kind of over it by about March, you know, but then it's like, you start already thinking about fishing in June. Um, so I don't know. It's, um, the act of filling it and emptying it. It's all, it's really built into what it's like to live here. But what strikes me about that is that that means Alaskans are actually much more in touch with a way of life that, that kind of disappeared in the lower 48 in terms of, worrying about winter approaching and what most of the pioneers and settlers originally had to really also be incredibly conscious of whether they were in Florida, Texas, or New England was the approach of winter and the change of the seasons and something that's kind of, I mean, it's kind of coming back to being discussed, but can still be taken for granted in a way that it sounds like it's much harder to take for granted in Alaska. Well, there's just an extreme nature to living here. I mean, Anchorage is like a normal kind of city. Um, but there was like, I remember having this realization there was like this windstorm. I don't know what, like seven years ago. And I was a reporter. I was sent out to kind of cover it. And I remember driving down the street and getting out of my car. And all of a sudden I heard this noise and it was the noise of generators. Like everybody on the street had a generator. Um, because you just would. And guess what those generators were powering? Their freezers. Um, (laughs) uh, And I think there is something about that that's like really Alaskan, like a sense of needing to take care of yourself um, and that things could go wrong and that things are extreme. Um, And that was in urban Alaska. I mean, rural Alaska, multiply that, you know, times many times, right? Um, And so I, I do think there are ways in which the psyche is like maybe more focused on self-reliance here than other places. It might just be, sometimes people tell me that it's like, we're a little bit lost in time, you know, like there, I mean, certainly the practices of gathering food and preparing it and uh, sort of uh, preserving it. A lot of that stuff is, you know, hundreds of years old, the way that people do it. It's also a time that's coming back in terms of either whether you look at it from the sort of shishi side of the Noma movement in Denmark or the fact that with climate change all over the country, more people are, I mean, I was seeing new houses advertised with a generator and that the <laughs> you're kind of well-placed to ride out what a lot of other people have, have started to realize might need to come back. Um, I, You know, that's true. And the other thing I find is that um, there is something in the moment of technology that we find ourselves in where so often you can be kind of distracted out of the present moment. Um, And the harvest of wild food is so such an antidote to that. You know, it's like, you want to have, you want to turn all of the anxiety inside your phone inside out. Okay. Well, go cut some fish, right? Go pick some berries. Um, and, you know, because the phone is not going to save us, right? <laughs> but maybe the <laughs> fish and berries will. You know, it's such an anxious time politically, and um, there's so much fractious sort of divisive energy in our world 
Um, but some of these practices, I think, are so soothing and also put you in touch with sort of something, you know, I don't know, it calms the existential kind of agita that comes with like the moment we find ourselves in politically, I think. I don't know. Um, I give some thought to that, though, because I find myself with a stupid phone all the time. <laughs> no, I, I take your point. I mean, you also wrote that, you know, Alaska's isolated geography has had a powerful influence on its food culture. Is everything we're talking about what you meant by by that statement? I mean, it makes sense to me, but it's an interesting connection that that isolation itself would be a defining aspect of your food culture. Well, isolation is really one of the things that causes us to long for things. I mean, because Alaska is so extreme and far away, you just can't always get all the things that you want. So people here, they think about food that they, maybe food that they had when they were outside of the state and there's a certain dish and they want to make it, but you have to like source all the, like a good example would be like someone trying to make some kind of like jambalaya or gumbo or that kind of a thing. And you want to find all the pieces to that dish, but you got to go to like a couple of different stores. You got to buy something on Amazon. Maybe you made some sausage that is andouille flavor, but it's made out of, you know, mousse. I don't know. Um, and, uh, and that, but people give a lot to, of thought to like recreating these things that they had elsewhere because it's not really easy to find that stuff. Um, so longing is kind of a piece of our food culture. And, and, and as I was growing up, there was a lot of sort of like, oh my God, Krispy Kreme donuts, if I could only try one of those or, you know, in and out burger or, you know, like chains. Um, I still think there's a way we got an Olive Garden like five years ago. I'm serious. Like people are still like, oh my God, Olive Garden. Um, it, cause there's just some kind of magic on that stuff, um, that, gets that way because we're so far away that there's almost like a sort of a fetish about it. Um, Cause you want to be connected to this, like to the larger culture and the larger culture seems more sophisticated. There's always this kind of underlying insecurity about it. Um, so, you know, there's all that stuff. Plus, you know, the biggest village, you know, the biggest Alaska native community in is in Anchorage and it's urban and it's removed from, you know, like to get to a village is a long plane ride. I mean, it's like, you don't just like drive there. You got to fly. It's expensive. So there are people who live in Anchorage who can't, you know, easily get the food that people are eating in the village, like subsistence food. So there's longing that way too. Um, and that's also to do with distance. If that makes sense. Yeah, Juan, that's fascinating, too. What you're talking about is that longing is also connected to belonging and whether you're a part of the native population and it's this wanting to to continue to belong to that culture and be um, assimilated or whether you're more connected to the, the wider American culture and wanting to belong in the same way that at least you perceive people to belong elsewhere. It's kind of a fascinating um, two-sided coin. Yeah, it's like it's sort of knitted right in with identity. Um, and there's a feeling of being an outsider when you live in Alaska, which, you know, on one side, it helps you to get a little distance on the political, you know, world, right? And then on the other side, you want to be part of things. You want to feel, taste the tastes and feel the feelings that are described. And, you know, and technology brings us that to us, like now more than ever. Um, but you want to be part of this larger thing. Alaskans experience FOMO in a, in a, in a stronger, stronger way. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that, yeah, they do a little bit. And then people get like all FOMO about Alaska, you know, it's like, um, they're like, whoa, it seems so cool up there. And you're like, yeah, but it'd be sweet to like, get a ripe avocado right now um that wasn't four (laughs) dollars like um you know so i don't know it's um it's just it's it's an island in a kind of a emotional sense or psychological sense and i wanted to ask you do 
Or do you have examples of like, uh, you know, we've just gone through New Year's, it's still very close to the, the ushering in of the New Year and certainly at the beginning of winter. Are there certain foods that Alaskans eat to celebrate either the holidays or usher in the New Year? Or is it pretty much the same as in other parts of America? Well, I think that people save like the good stuff, you know, in the larder or the pantry or the freezer. It's definitely a time of eating king crab. This is a time, I mean... Uh, New Year's and Christmas, that would be, um, you know, like a rich, delicious, wild food that's pretty commonly eaten in the holiday time. Um, but I, I don't know if, you know, the other thing that we're we're moving into kind of the most austere season and just in terms of like what it feels like when you're trying to shop at the grocery store, um, there are we're out of all of our, cause we have like a pretty robust agricultural world. It's like a crazy burst um, that happens in the, um, in the summertime and kind of peters along into the fall. But now it's like, that is over. Um, so we're reliant on uh, outside food and it's just kind of sad. <laughs> One of the things that has happened more though in this moment is kind of the hydroponic stuff. Um, so, you know, this is the time of like green, little tiny green shoots that you can buy and maybe some local basil, but, um, but yeah, so this, this time of year is, is where you're kind of hitting your freezer stores of blueberries and homemade pesto and what have you, um, more, I would say. Makes sense. All right. And I'm, yeah, I'm thinking about the king crab. And that, that's interesting because that's tied to sort of other parts of the world of having a sort of local seafood as, like certainly in France, they have oysters for New Year's. And that's also partly seasonal as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's just you save the good stuff for the New Year. But now we kind of slide into the $4 unripe avocado sad lettuce season. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to keep exploring the non-sad side of the Alaskan foodways with Julia O'Malley. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. The food service industry faces a challenge. More people are eating out, yet restaurants are losing talent. Why is this? Research by Fair Kitchens reveals a serious well-being issue within professional kitchens. 74% of chefs are sleep deprived to the point of exhaustion. 63% of chefs feel depressed. And more than half feel pushed to the breaking point. This can't be ignored. Fair Kitchens is a movement based on the belief that a positive kitchen culture makes for a healthier business. By taking the pledge to be a Fair Kitchen, they'll provide you with free information, tools, and resources to help you take action towards making your restaurant more stable, productive, and happy, which positively affects the guest experience. It's time to act now. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Alaskan journalist Julia O'Malley, author of The Whale and the Cupcake, Stories of Subsistence, Longing, and Community in Alaska. So, Julia, we were talking in in the first half about Native subsistence values and how that very much informs Alaskan food culture. But I, I wanted to ask you kind of more about that and how are those traditions still separate? Are they dying out? How, how have... Like, what have your, been your findings, particularly in recent, researching this book, about how in live they are and, and whether they're sort of now being taught to other people as well? I think that there, I mean, I am not Alaska Native and I am not like a expert on subsistence. It has been my experience living here that there is tremendous enthusiasm Um from people my age and younger to participate in subsistence and that eating subsistence food and having your children 
eat subsistence food is like a really important part of being native. Um, and, you know, the, and I, my job, my day job is to edit stories from um, radio reporters that are positioned all over rural Alaska and small communities. And um, I would say that subsistence is pretty robust and it's an economic necessity because there's a lot of places in rural Alaska without a strong cash economy. And so people have to get subsistence foods in order to continue to live where they live. But the challenge um, isn't about people not being interested in participating in subsistence. It's about, uh, I mean, one big challenge is that climate change is really challenging the rhythms of nature that we're used to. Um, So caribou migration is changing. The fish aren't coming back. Uh, The travel on rivers, which sort of function as highways in rural Alaska, has become treacherous because the ice is unstable. So there are a lot of things outside of our control that are influencing people's ability to subsist. That said, people are figuring it out and finding ways the drive to participate in subsistence is as strong as it has always been, I think. Um, The other thing is just the cost of it is complicated always, the cost of fuel, the cost of continuing to live in rural places. so it's sort of access, I think, is the, maybe the most practical obstacle, but certainly not desire. Um, I think people are, it is a hugely important value here. And, and is it something that's really been corrupted or changed not only by climate change, but by the sort of influence of non-native foods and things, you know, everywhere from, you know, as you talked about, donuts being uprised, Um commodity well i mean i don't i don't think food culture is static um and so certainly you know the introduction of non-native foods into the native diet has been you know nutritionally people will say has been mixed i think you know one of the people in my book is a naturopathic doctor who's alaska native and just talks about how sort of unhealthy uh, the just sugars and flowers are, um, you know, uh, for people, you know, Alaska Native people. And um, and I mean, that's like something that's happening in indigenous communities everywhere, like the type 2 diabetes and that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess my question is, has these Native subsistence traditions, whether they're foraging or whether they're just how you prepare food or how you cook food or what foods you eat, kind of been suppressed or they've actually kind of nicely... Uh, coexisted next to the more Western or foreign inputs that have been brought into Alaska? Well, I mean, there are places in which the taste for certain foods has waned. Um, You know, like, for example, in Southeast Alaska, where there is just like, there are just too many seals, they're eating all the fish, you know, and um, they can't be hunted except by Alaska natives. And so, when and there are hunters who will go to get the seal, um, but it's hard for them to find eaters in their local community. And actually, one of the cooler things is that they're able to send that seal to. We have a large Alaska Native hospital here with a cafeteria that can prepare subsistence foods, um, so they're able to sort of send the seal there. Um, so, I mean, there are certain ways in which the taste for certain foods is probably waned. Um, and maybe that's to do with exposure to all the different kinds of foods. Um, but, you know, certainly just the, there's also just the cost factor, right? There, there are foods that are cheaper and there's a lot of economic stresses, especially in rural Alaska. So it's like high sugar, cheap cereal, that kind of stuff. I think the thing that probably challenges subsistence most is, are, is economics is sort of like make, and a lot of subsistence foods are proteins. So the other, um, you know, things are really filled in with like cheap macaroni and cereal and rice and um, stuff that isn't necessarily nutritionally the best. Um, but I think it's it's mostly the, you know, there's a lot of poverty in the places that rely on subsistence. So it's the that's more of a vector, I think, than anything else. If that makes sense. 
Yeah, it does. And I was also curious because you also write about how Alaska is, continues to have a high rate of immigration and that immigration has become maybe less white than it used to be and includes, you know, Asian immigrants and, you know, joining the descendants of white settlers. And, and do you really see ultimately, and I'm kind of looking at it from a food culture perspective, has that really augmented Alaskan culture or has it meant this sort of loss of, of cultural practices that you were talking about? Well, Alaska's like, Alaska's owned by the native people and everybody else who's showed up here has been coming for the most part. There have been waves of people from all over the world who have come bringing their own traditions, their religion, um, because it's a re it's a place that people come to harvest resources. So it's like, you know, we had a big Russian influence on our cooking that came with Russian fur traders. Right. And that, brought religion and brought all kinds of things to the Alaska Native communities that have become part of the food culture there. So there's sort of an amalgam of food, of kind of food traditions everywhere um, that's, hundred you know, 100 years old. Um, there were Chinese immigrants who helped to build the railroad. There have There's a 100-year tradition of Filipino um, people working mainly in the fishing industry. So when you look at community cookbooks over the last 100 years, you see in different regions of the state kind of immigrant influences. There's all kinds of Norwegian stuff happening out in the Aleutians and also like kind of the Bristol Bay region um, from those influences. Um, So, you know, it's never been – there's nothing pure about the – culture outside of the last the Alaska Native world here. But in the last 20 years, we've had, especially in urban Alaska, a big influx of um, immigrants from the kind of um, Asian Pacific Islander world. Um, so all that's done is kind of just made things like more, I would say our, our food culture has always been influenced by immigrants, but there's like kind of an interesting, I don't know what, there are just these interesting ways in which... Um, you know, like spam. Let's talk about spam for a sec. Spam is a great example of a food that's really, I think Honolulu has like the highest per cap, or like, you know, Hawaii has the highest per capita spam consumption. But Alaska, we've been eating a lot of spam too, because it's shelf stable. It also has like this military tie and the military is a big influence here as well as in Hawaii. So like every grocery store, I mean, every gas station here, like there's spam masubi there and everybody eats it. It makes sense to people who grew up in Alaska because we kind of have a secret love for spam, but it's also this island food, um, you know, and plus everybody eats rice and the seaweed flavor is something that makes a lot of sense to people who have eaten marine mammal. Um, and uh, also we harvest seaweed here in certain regions too. So there's like these kind of really interesting I don't know, ties that make these foods kind of make sense. The eating of raw fish, so like sushi, um, people come in from the villages to the city and like sushi makes a ton of sense because people eat raw fish in villages. Um, you know, so there, it's almost just kind of these uh, kind of coastal cultures have a lot in common, even though they're separated by a five-hour plane ride. Um, you know, pho, pho is another thing. Like there's this crazy pho shop that, you know, is super popular with Pacific Islanders. Like, you know, it's next door to a a manicure shop that's run by a Vietnamese people. They all come there after that. There's like a lot of Hmong people here and that type of eating makes a lot of sense to them. Plus it may, plus it's popular with everybody else. Um, so I mean, in a way, I just see what's happening now as a continuation of what's always happened here as, you know, as soon as white people started coming. Well, that makes sense. It's kind of like the crossroads idea and how when you really start digging into like Mediterranean food or even Middle Eastern food or you start talking, looking at what even things that are like inherently associated with Persian food. And then you realize, well, actually, it was things that the silk trade brought through and different layers or layers or where Indians Indians started eating rice. So I think you've described this similar thing that Alaska has just sort of held these different waves of influences and made them sort of they've kept the parts that made sense and the rest of it went by the wayside. Yeah, I mean, they're just ways that also a lot of these things like can adapt well to wild food. Um you know, the using salmon, 
to, you know, make making a pocket of rice and seaweed with salmon, like that makes sense. Um, you know, I mean, so there's a little bit of that, I guess, too. And do you think like you, you note in your book, like spam sushi, which you, you sort of talked around, but you didn't actually specifically describe, is that also a way that spam kind of substitutes for when the fresh salmon isn't running or, and then that just sort of makes sense seasonally? No, I mean, the masubi is like its own thing and it is like totally about spam. Um, it It's like, I think, um, on a, Gary, or it's sort of like there's there are a lot of like sort of Japanese uses of rice and um and seaweed as kind of like almost like a sandwich vibe that has all kinds of fillings and different things um so is uh kind of maybe the DNA of masubi um but masubi is about spam um and uh and you could put salmon in it but it would be like you were subbing in for the spam <laughs> So that's like, that's how that works. Oh, I see. So you're saying that specific dish, even though it's sushi-like, it is also about celebrating the spam as much as anything else. Yeah, it is. Yeah, like if you were to go on your phone and like type in masubi, you would like come up with like a bunch of like dancing like spam sandwiches because it's like a total thing. Um, Just like it's about spam. Well, I guess that makes it easier, though, if you can't get to Alaska and you want to eat something that is very much symbolic Alaskan food uh, culture, you can make yourself that dish and bite into it and imagine yourself on the tundra. Oh, what is a dish like that? No, no. I was saying you, you're saying it's called Matsubi, the 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 sort of spam sushi like sandwich. Matsubi, and it it's like it's like a it's a Japanese Hawaiian thing, but it's also like really popular here because of the influence of immigration. But it's not in Alaska. It, it's not. It's like it's just a way in which our food culture has absorbed um it's like something everybody eats but it um it it comes from kind of an immigrant pacific islander tradition i see what you mean so it's not inherently traditionally alaskan it's more of like a modern connotation but i i see what you're saying is you're connecting it up to actually what it really is is it sort of this connection of all different kinds of pacific coastal cultures melding together Totally. Yeah. And it's, it's like a a sort of a flavor profile. It's like salty. It's got seaweed, which is a wild food. It has rice, which is like eaten by everybody. Um, And it, it's like a portable, it's cheap. Um, It just, it makes sense in Alaska in sort of some of the same ways that it makes sense in like Hawaii, which is like where it's really eaten. And on that note, it's We've talked about this in various ways, but I was sort of curious how you would sum it up, that in many ways there are things that really distinguish Alaskan food culture and Alaskan culture as unique, like talking about seal or whaling. And then there are also things that are incredibly, to me, American about Alaska, maybe not in terms of the food, but like to me, the inherent idea of Alaska, this wilderness to be conquered, settled, and also to be in awe of and humbled by and the the liberty and freedom that is at least represented by Alaska, how do you kind of frame those together that, you know, is both Alaskan and uniquely Alaskan, but also very American, at least ideologically? Um, let me think about that question. Uh, you know, Alaska is a frontier state. It is sort of the very edge. And in that way, it might be psychologically sort of compared to the rest of America, like um, we're maybe a little bit back in time. And there are certain ways in which we can't transcend the distance and the way that it makes us feel different. Um, But as we mature and as technology increases, it's the ability to communicate and ship and transport and deliver the messages of the wider culture. I think we grow closer to being like anywhere else. Um, if that makes sense, maybe. 
I don't know. No, it, well, it does. I mean, it's interesting how, in some sense, you were talking about that in the beginning about being connected to the present, whereas your phone often makes you drop into a vortex and maybe not be connected to your presence. But then it's also this idea that all technology seems to be making the world a smaller place because you have access to information in a, in a in a way you never did before at a speed you never did before. Yet what you've just talking about that distance and the geographic isolation still has a powerful influence that even the connection to information can't necessarily overcome. Yeah. I mean, I, I have this, there was this moment that was really striking to me when I was working on one of the stories for my book where I was like up in Point Hope, which is like pretty far north in Alaska. And, um, and I think it's like one of the most the longest continually inhabited places in the world, um, something like that. And they, they rely mostly on subsistence. And I was like, we were making what's called Eskimo ice cream in this house. And it's basically you add air to animal fat and the fat becomes really light. And then you add protein like um, maybe fish to it um, or types of meat or sometimes people also will add like in this case we were adding berries and then some seal oil but I'm sitting there and in order to whip it it's whipped by hand so that like the warmth of your hand helps to um, soften the fat and add air Um, and at the same time we were like watching cable on this like big screen tv because like I don't know they're just everywhere you go you can't escape like a big screen tv with cable in rural Alaska and it was like there's a barefoot Contessa and she's like making some dish that like, there's just no way you would be able to get all the ingredients for it. Um, But I guess that there is sort of a determinedness you have to have to continue some of those food traditions here. But I guess that moment really crystallized for me kind of what food culture in a way, kind of like what food culture is like here. You know, oh, and some of the people weren't using animal fat. They were using Crisco because there wasn't enough fat. Um, so, um, so I don't know if that that moment, though, is sort of like what it's like, if that makes sense. Like, you know, and yeah, you got your people are holding on to tradition. They are bound to tradition because of distance and economics, but at the same time, there's, there are these increasingly powerful messages and images from the outside world that are dissonant. Um, and I don't know what that means for us going forward, really. Yeah, I know that's fascinating. That was, that was, that was a great uh, depiction of what I was asking. Thanks for that. Do you have a favorite food memory from any visit you've made to Alaska? Do you think Alaskan foodways represents a new strand of American regional cuisine or not quite yet? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org and let us know. After the break, Julia is going to reveal her own Julia moment. We'll be right back. Looking for something fun, delicious, mind-expanding to do this March? Always wanted to visit Santa Barbara, America's Riviera? Are you a big Julia Child fan? We are bringing all of that together at the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, March 13th to 15th, 2020, three-plus days of unique only-in-Santa-Barbara events, including cooking demonstrations, wine tastings, culinary talks, workshops, and classes, farm tours, and guided farmer's market visits, as well as special meals from top chefs like Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger, Ludo Lefebvre, and Chris Bianco and dinners at Santa Barbara's hottest dining spots like The Lark and BBG. Go to sbce.events to check it all out. Platinum passes are on sale now, and general tickets go on sale January 21st. You'll even have the chance to attend a live Inside Julia's Kitchen taping. Special hotel rates are on offer until mid-February. Don't miss out, as I'd love to see you there. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. 
Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Julia, what's your Julia moment? Well, uh, I share a birthday with Julia Child, a name, and also I attended Smith College, um, as she did as well. Oh, my gosh. Wow, um, a trifecta. Yeah, so so all of that is kind of a fun parallel. Um, the first cookbook I received was Cooking with Julia when I was 17, Baking with Julia when I was 17, and I still use the brownie recipe. So there you have it. <laughs> Well, six succinct but but powerful connections. That is that is really trippy. But we're the name is not you're not ne- there because there are people, but you're not necessarily named after her. You're... No, I'm named after the Beatles song. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fascinating. You're you're just a, a, a pop culture uh, composite. You know, Julia's story is more meaningful to me as I get older because. I just think about the women who attended Smith, you know, in the time that she did and how smart they were. Um, and, you know, I, I don't remember perfectly, but wasn't it that she got a job sort of as a secretary, like keeping the names? It was a secret secretary, but she's like super duper smart and well-educated. And she has to though prove herself, you know, like she gets hired um, by the government. Right. And, um, she's got to keep the names of all of these special agents on white cards. Like, um, but women who went to Smith in that era, like just thinking about how they had to overcome so many things to just be treated as smart, to be understood as, as smart as they were. Um, And I just, I think about that as I get older and, you know, I ascend in the workplace dynamic. And I just think that like, you know, 50 years ago, it would have taken a long time or I would never have been a a manager, you know? Um, And so it's more meaningful to me thinking about her rise um, to prominence in the world of food, because food is actually a place where women, we just didn't have the same barriers. Um, And anyway... No, I I, th- I think that's astute because you're pointing out that irony. In Julia's day when you went to Smith, you, you needed to be smart. You were expected to be well-educated. But the main goal of the families who sent their daughters there was to get them a good husband still. It's certainly in Julia's right. day. And the fact that Julia went and got a job was because yeah. she hadn't, you know, fit into that mold. It was not she was trying to climb the workforce. It was a default. Everyone else she knew who was, quote, unquote, successful out of Smith had gotten married, right? Right. I mean, you just you became educated to become a wife. Um, And so and she used it. But even so, had to prove herself, you know, in a world where it was kind of handed to her male counterparts. Um, So anyway, I just think about it hasn't really been that long since that was the way that the world worked. That is definitely true. Well, Julia, thank you very much for sharing your uh, Alaskan insights and your and your Julia moment connected to Smith and your name and birthday with us uh, today. <laughs> thanks for having me. Our pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. The book is The Whale and the Cupcake, Stories of Subsistence, Longing, and Community in Alaska, published by the University of Washington Press in collaboration with the Anchorage Museum, written by our guest today, Julia O'Malley. And it has a lovely forward by Kim Severson of the New York Times. Search for it online or ask for it at your local bookseller. To learn more about Alaska and Julia, Julia O'Malley's work, go to juliaomalley.media. It's O-M-A-L-L-E-Y. And if you're only interested in pictures and a few bon mots, she's at joemalley17 on Instagram and at julia underscore O'Malley in the Twitterverse. To keep up with the foundation in 2020, make sure you're following at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. And if you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that helps even the more. 
We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about HOST, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Niporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, J.J. Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks.